1: One, two, three! Welcome to The Rap Report with your host, Andrew Rappaport, where we provide biblical interpretation and application. This is a ministry of Striving for Eternity and the Christian podcast community.
2: For more content or to request a speaker for your church, go to strivingforeternity.org. All right, well, welcome to another Rap Report. I'm your host, Andrew Rappaport. And just a programming note, I am not joined by my usual sidekick, but one that used to be here, uh, Bud Alheim is going to be busy doing some other things. He just got uh, overwhelmed with some work as, as he started up not one, but yet we will be announcing soon a second podcast he's doing. So he is quite busy, and for that reason, we brought in an older, well, not, yeah. ne- not necessarily older not, in not that older. sense, but older <laughs> in the sense that you used to be a, 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 a co-host years ago, uh, Pastor Jim Osman from Kootenay Community Church. Welcome back.
1: Thanks, Andrew. Thanks for having
2: me. We we should say that I have learned how to say Kootney. because yeah,
1: you have. You're doing well. It took you a while, but you're doing
2: well. <laughs> when you had your very first conference at the church, when you got your building, you invited me to speak, and I had a little bit of difficulty saying that word. Shall we yeah. say?
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's it's spelled odd.
2: Yeah, I think I think you ended up coming up with a, a list of all the ways I mispronounced it, but <laughs> I got it down. Uh, but you pastor up there and I have folks that may not remember Jim, uh, Jim, Jim, the thing that I love about Jim is the fact that he has been a member of a total of one church and you, and you didn't, you kind of grew up, but not really. It wasn't like you were, were raised in that church, right? You got saved and started going to that church as a young yeah, man. Yeah, I got saved
1: as a result of the ministry of this church. Actually, when I was 15 years old, I'd, I started attending when I was, around 12 or 13 or so, and there was a family that lived down the street from us that had invited us to this church. So my sister and I started coming here at youth group at Sunday school and eventually um, went to a Bible camp about 20 minutes south of the town here, and uh, that's where the Lord saved me, and then I came back and continued on in youth group and ended up becoming a member and going to Bible college and then coming back and serving here with my wife, and then they eventually asked me to take over as pastor. So I got saved as a result of the ministry of this church and have been here ever since.
2: And... For folks that don't know, one of uh, the, the oh, man, can I actually admit this live, like online, but one of, one of my favorite books, oh, that's hard to say, Jim. I mean, I've had this record when, when I've interviewed you for your, all your books. I, I, I never admit that I've read them.
1: <laughs> if you've read the, but, dust, the dust cover, if you've read the cover, then you're pretty close. Yeah,
2: but uh, your latest book, God Doesn't Whisper, we've, we have had you on as a guest talking about that. But folks, this is, you know, he's written the book, God Doesn't Whisper, which is a really the best book I know on answering the question. People are saying they hear the voice of God. God spoke to me. I get these nudges and things like that. Great book. Um, so I encourage you Thank guys you. to go get that. Um, the the running joke is when I interviewed him, and this will be for our guest today to, to pick up, is when I interviewed Jim about his, not even, uh, there's before God Doesn't Whisper, it's just about your other books.
1: Truth or Territory, Truth,
2: right. Truth or Territory. Uh and uh the prosperity, prosperity of the wicked. The wicked. <clears throat> so yeah. it was it was over those two. And, and I, I purposely made it look sound like I didn't actually read the book. And, and Jim was like, You didn't read my book. So I thoroughly convinced him <laughs> that I hadn't read the book and, and so the the running joke was that I, I didn't read it. Well he he told me I was gonna be the the I could write the forward to this next book, uh, which he, I got bumped for John MacArthur. I can't believe why. I mean really. But uh the the thing that was funny about it was you know we had as a joke we when we were doing the website there was a little while where we the the you know the guy that does his website said hey, I need can you write you know a recommendation for a book? sure but I didn't get to it in enough time so you put something up in place of it and it just said. You know the best book I never read, or something like that, just as a placeholder for for where I would put it. <laughs> and so, uh, so yeah, so so I, then I interviewed him for for God Doesn't Whisper, and he goes, "Man, you really seem to know the book for a guy that never read it." <laughs> <clears throat> so, so yeah, so I, 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 you know, now that I've admitted it's my favorite, but I, I haven't actually admitted that I read it. I just admitted that it was my favorite. Maybe yeah, I just like the cover. cover. Yeah, favorite my favorite cover. There favorite we go.
1: Because
2: oh. <laughs> that is John McArthur. But speaking of books, uh, our guest today, Bodie Hodge, is, has written just a few books or involved in just a few books. Uh, so, Bodie, welcome to The Rap Report. Hey, it's great to be on the show. You've been involved in Answers in Genesis. You've been involved in a lot of writing. So for folks who don't know, Bodhi, much about you, because you're kind of, you, your name is like on a lot of books there at Answers in Genesis. Uh, I know when I go to the bookstore and just go through, it's like, I think your name's on all of them, actually. <laughs> it could be. It's either it, you it or Ken like Ham. I don't know. Or you and Ken Ham on most of them. Yeah. But uh, just give folks a, a little bit of a background of who you are, what you do there at Answers in Genesis, and, and, just so, and then we'll yeah. get into some of the, the works that you've done.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, You know, I've got a bachelor's and a master's degree in mechanical engineering, and I actually specialize in material science. But I've always had this love for history and theology, and there is a connection between all that, because theology, for example, is the queen of the sciences. Uh, It's kind of the foundation to to look at any of these sciences, so I get to see that connection. But uh, I used to teach at Southern Illinois University at Carbondale. I used to teach engineering. I also used to work at Caterpillar as a test engineer, large construction equipment, things like that. And then I went into the Ministry of Answers in Genesis, and I've absolutely loved it. So I've gotten a chance to use the the history, the theology, and the science all here together. And I'm a speaker, a writer, and a researcher. Uh, the Lord has taken me to four different continents uh, over the years. I've got to see sites you never never dreamt to, to be able to see. I've floated down the Grand Canyon. I've seen the Northern Lights. I've swam in the Great Barrier Reef. Uh, you know, and uh, all, all this is really just you know, the Lord's doing the work and he's just dragging me along uh, along the way. But I have been involved in a lot of books, uh, somewhere between 25 and 30 books. Uh, it's got my name on it somewhere or another, um, you know, whether I'm a contributing author, whether I'm an, a general editor or the, the sole author of the book. I've also been involved in a lot of web articles, magazine articles, technical journal articles, you name it. I kind of been all over the place. But uh, when it comes down to it, all that stuff doesn't matter. I'm a sinner saved by grace, and that's the one that matters.
2: So, amen. Yeah. So, and now you and I met, <clears throat> and uh, we we're out at answering and Genesis, and, and and you could probably laugh and and, and bust on me a bit. I, I was I not like a kid in the candy store when we got up to the Ark encounter, and you were showing me the big t- the so so folks. I, I think I, I've mentioned this on a previous episode. <clears throat> they got a seventy foot by twenty two foot TV. That from the very, I mean, how, how big is that auditorium? Like, cause from the very oh, back.
0: Yeah. You can hold somewhere in the neighborhood of 22, 2300 people in there easily. Okay. It's just, it's gigantic. So it's, and so the it's stage is huge itself.
2: Oh, so. it was very, I mean, it's cause <clears throat> it's longer than the TV. So it's way over 70 yeah. foot, but how, how deep is that? I mean, cause I, from the very back, I'm, I'm saying it like a hundred, 200 feet at least.
0: Would you oh think? my! I can't even remember the actual dimensions yeah. on it, but, but anyway, there, there's so much space up there. We we can play a small game of basketball. Yeah, I mean, a problem up on the stage.
2: That TV was was so. Br- I mean, it was it was like high def from yeah. a huge distance back, and I was like <clears throat> so excited to like go up there. And you get up there, you 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 showed me like it's all just a bunch of LEDs.
0: <laughs> yeah. There are a whole bunch of smaller TVs put together to make a gigantic screen. The whole back of the stage is the screen. Yeah. And there's so much we can do with it. It, it really is amazing. So. <laughs> it was So I was yeah. sitting there like a little kid going like, oh, this is so neat. <laughs> like, uh, most people are like, wow, look at the size of the arc. He's like, look at the size of the screen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean most
2: people probably get up on the stage and look at like look out at the audience to see how how many people it holds or how big it I'm like I was okay, I'm nerdy. <laughs> Most people would be looking at the at the audience I'm looking at a TV going getting excited about that. <laughs> but we we oh. met there and uh we started talking and found a whole lot of topics. You, you and I've written on some of the same topics, things like world religions, yeah. things like reliability of scripture. And and we want to you know, you've written on all, all things of dinosaurs, Tower of Babel, um contradictions in the Bible, um I'm trying to think of some of the others. Um, yeah, any,
0: anything flood. from Genesis 1 <laughs> to 11. <laughs> you know, I've been in and out of that, up and down. Old books on the fall of Satan, a uh, flood of evidence, and uh, you name it. Kids' books, teens' books, uh, answers' books. So
2: let's let's zoom in on one series of books you've done, which is... You know, you've done you've done two series that are close to my my heart in a sense of one being on the world religions, one because we've written on the same thing. A, a second one that you've you spent a good amount of time writing on a series called "How Do We Know the Bible Is True?" Basically, how mm-hmm. can we trust the Bible? Um, you, yeah. I mean, sort of with that, you've done some you know things on on contradictions in the Bible. But mm-hmm. <clears throat> let's delve into this question because of the fact that Correct. as someone who does a lot of evangelism. I know this is the number one issue when you evangelize that people are going to raise. I'm not a prophet, not the son of a prophet, but whenever I train people and teach people to do evangelism, I will tell them that that you will be asked in one way or another, can you trust the Bible? This question comes up over and over and over again, and a lot of people don't know that there's answers. They don't know how to defend it. So let's dig into that. First off— you have several volumes with this. What are each of the volumes trying to cover?
0: Well, just as a big picture, we're trying to hit a lot of the apologetic subjects, what we call general apologetics. Anything from how do we know the Bible is true, how do you interpret the Scripture, what about the resurrection, what about miracles, is the Old Testament uh, trustworthy and New Testament trustworthy? Um, you know, These are the types of things that we're dealing with in this how do we know the Bible is true series. We have two volumes in it, volume one and volume two, and uh, they're just amazing books. I've actually got them sitting here. Let me hold them up so people can see what they kind of look like, and uh, hopefully uh, people can, can kind of see that. Um, yeah. I know sometimes things flip backwards and so forth, no, but it you an idea. What, and I'll, uh, put what links, I'll
2: put links in the show notes for folks for yeah. those as
0: well. But uh, these are, are wonderful books. They're multi-author. We actually had a number of different people who are experts in those areas write those particular chapters. And, uh, you know, me as a general editor, you know, I got a chance to go through all of them. Uh, same with Ken Ham. And then at the same time, we're authors on certain ones as well. So it was really nice to be able to dive into this and uh, work, work with some really good people uh, to uh, get some pretty good subject material out there.
2: So why do you think, I mean, I gave the reason why I think this is so important. <laughs> why do you think this subject is so important for Christians today?
0: Well, there's a couple of things. First, I totally agree with you. When you're out there witnessing and talking to people, uh, this is one of the issues that come up. How, how do you know the Bible's is true? Uh, b- because that, that actually is how you view God. That's how you're going to view the nature of who Christ is. Uh, it all depends on their view of scripture, of course. Um, another aspect is the issue of authority. We're in a culture where people have largely rejected the Bible as the authority. And as a result of that, by default, man's ideas are then elevated to supersede God and his word. And so by default, that's the religion of humanism. So this subject actually relates uh, to the religion subject here because all other religions, one way or another, are humanistic because they've elevated man's ideas to supersede gods to take people away from God and his word, whether it's Islam, Hinduism, atheism, you name it, all these different religions. But uh, particularly in the Western world, the secular forms of humanism are what are dominating and what and in that mindset the bible's automatically thrown out they've already they've already tossed it out so when we're witnessing to people of course yeah we have to deal with the subject of how do we know the bible is true but also a lot of those other general apologetics questions they're all interrelated right there and that's why it's so important because it's the face to face evangelism you need to know how to answer these questions
2: so i mean the the main question of the book how do we how do we know the bible is true let's dig into that
0: yeah, well, I love that subject. In fact, that's a that's a pretty deep subject. Sometimes people don't realize how deep it really is. Um, you know, I love talking to say atheists on this or even people who are Hindu, um, uh, you know, for just because I understand their worldviews, I understand their religion. So when they come out and they ask the question, how do we know the Bible's true? They've they've automatically assumed a few things. They've assumed truth exists, they assume knowledge exists, and they assume that we're made. Uh, in such a way that we can actually understand truth and knowledge. So just to ask the question, I want people to realize the Bible has to be true. Now, why do I compare that to, say, an atheistic worldview? An atheist, they are, by definition, materialistic. They're not out there saying maybe there's no God. They're saying there is no God. They're being absolute with that. And uh, their religion is actually built on what's called materialism. The only things that exist are the material universe, matter, energy, uh, things like that. So they have no spiritual realm. They have no God in their worldview. But when you think about that and take that religion just a little bit further, if everything is material, well, then all of a sudden truth can't exist. Knowledge can't exist. Logic can't exist. Because in their own worldview, those things are not material. So in their own worldview, they can't even ask the question. So if atheism's true, they can't ask the question. They can't get an answer. They, a lot of times an atheist doesn't realize that. So what they have to do just to ask the question, well, how do you know the Bible's truth? They have to give up their religion, stand on the Bible's truthfulness, uh, because truth comes out of a biblical worldview. We're made in the image of a truthful God. Uh, We can understand uh, knowledge. God is all-knowing. We're finite in our knowledge. But the thing is, they have to stand on the Bible just to ask the question, which is a great way to refute their religion on it. Same sort of thing uh, happens with Hinduism. In Hinduism, all is one. Everything is spirit. The material doesn't exist. Um, this is the doctrine of Maya, so you know, all the physical stuff doesn't really exist. And I know That might scare people's brains, but New Age, um, uh, Taoism, all these uh, are, are just rehashes of these Eastern religions. And in those religions, if all is one, well, that means that truth and falsity are one and the same. Knowledge and, ha- and having no knowledge are one and the same. So you can't even ask the question in a religion that's, that's an Eastern religion. So they, they actually start to undercut themselves. Now, to bring that back, then, how do we know the Bible's true? Well, the Bible has to be true. God has to be the truth in order to even ask the question. And a lot of times we don't think of it that way. Now, we have a lot of confirmations that the Bible's true, and we can see that in a lot of different areas. But I like to hit the philosophical part first, uh, just to get people's brains going uh, right, right off the bat here.
2: And and for folks who are not familiar with certain terminology, what you're what you're actually defining is a type of apologetics called presuppositional apologetics. Yeah. And, and I really this, am. Yeah, and this is something I think a lot of people are confused with with Answers in Genesis. I, I've noticed this over the years. And most people think that Answers in Genesis is an evidential apologetic organization. But listen mm-hmm. to the the arguments made. I remember the debate that Ken Ham had with Bill Nye. And it's like that he, what was he doing? Making a presuppositional argument. And I think that a lot of people are confused with answers in Genesis in that way. I had a years ago, we had Chinese mission people, students at universities that were going to be Chinese missionaries in China. And what they were doing in that is they were using, it was an exchange student program. So they would go there with the purpose of, of being an exchange, exchange students for a summer to do this leadership program with Chinese students. They lived with the, the students. So it was like this, you know, future leaders. They, they want to get to learn Americanism. So they'd, they would talk about what Amer- it's like in America. But what these guys would do is all talk about things that led them to sharing the gospel. They'd talk about Christmas and resurrection Sunday, things like that. Well, one of the students, uh, he was a physicist, actually did volunteer work out at CERN. If you're if folks who are familiar oh, yeah, with yeah. CERN, and he was very much against Answers in Genesis, and his argument was because he's you know he does science and you know he was all into believing the science of things, and he but I discovered he really didn't know much about Answers in Genesis, and I, I remember asking him. I said, "So what's the purpose? Do you think of Answers in Genesis?" And he goes well, to prove that creation is, is right and, you know, that science is wrong. And I said, no. So you missed the main point of it. The, the point of, you know, of Answers Genesis, as Ken Ham always says, is to give Christians trust that the Bible is accurate. It's not so much for the unbelieving world, and that's what people think. It's not a ministry as much for the unbelieving world, but for the believing world.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And... So, so you know that. Go ahead, explain explain what you, about that more.
0: Yeah, just uh, you know, uh, there is those misconceptions about answers in Genesis. We're a Bible upholding ministry. We you know we often uh, want to go out and preach biblical authority. That that's what we're on about. As a corollary, you get a relatively young age of the earth out of that. Um, you know, in the scientific aspects of, of creation. But yeah, first and foremost, we want people to walk out of here going, "Wow, the Bible's true," and because the Bible's true, the message of the gospel is also true. And guess what? Things start lining up. But, uh, you know, when it comes to presuppositional apologetics, you know, sometimes we throw that name out there, and people are like, well, what is that? You know, sometimes they haven't heard of it. Um, you know, so sometimes I like to explain it before I, I talk much about the, the name. But it, basically, we you know, we start with God as the absolute presupposition. And by extension, of course, then His Word uh, comes with the authority of God Himself. And there is no greater authority than God and His Word. You know, I like to think of Hebrews 6.13 when... The Lord swore to Abraham, he swore by himself, because there is nothing greater. There is no greater authority than God in any matter. And, of course, uh, his word comes with that authority of uh, he himself. So that's what we're standing on. We're standing on the authority of God in his word before we look at anything. Now, you know, there's uh, evidential apologetics and classical apologetics, a lot of different methods people have thrown out of there. Those are methods that more came from the Greeks, where you start with logic And you try to look at things from a, a, you know, you try to look at evidence from a logical perspective, and you try to build on that. And if you get to a certain point, then, oh, well, maybe the Bible is true, or maybe God does exist. But those are all probabilistic arguments. We flip that around. Um, A lot of times, you know, people who are familiar with presuppositional apologetics, you might go back to Cornelius Van Til or Greg Bonson. Greg Bonson was famous uh, for uh, the great debate where he debated uh, an atheist, Dr. Gordon Stein, and just left the guy speechless on the stage. And, uh, it, you know, he pulled the rug out from under him, you know, because this atheist, he couldn't account for logic in his own worldview, Um, you know, which is pretty powerful. So l- l- let me clarify a couple of misconceptions here, though. You know, with presuppositional apologetics, we do use evidence, you know, in an evidential uh, perspective, uh, they do have presuppositions. <laughs> I think a lot of people, they just don't understand the methodologies properly. Uh, you know, as somebody back in my youth, uh, I actually used to be a, a diehard evidential and classical apologist. And then once I understood presuppositional apologetics, I'm like, oh, wow, okay, this solves everything. Let's flip it and let's let God be the absolute authority from the very first verse. And it really is a powerful apologetic when we do that.
2: We, yeah, we see. We, this is what we end up seeing is the fact that it's it's your starting point right yeah. and if if we have the right starting point which is what answers in genesis has has been about right the the starting point is not the world has got the right answer when it comes to science it's that the bible has the right answer right. for to start with for everything and
1: yeah, yeah isn't the uh, isn't the catchphrase defending the authority of scripture from the very first verse Yes. You know, the very first verse is, uh, in the beginning, God, then that's where you begin. That's where Scripture begins. That's where we begin, and that's where our apologetics must begin.
0: That's right. And, and all this different uh, scientific aspects or uh, the, the different arguments that we make, whether it's general apologetics and so forth, those are nothing but a confirmation yeah. of we ex- what we expect mm-hmm. to find in Scripture. And I, you know, that's why I like to use that terminology. When we look at chemistry or, or biology or physics— you know, these are a great confirmation of Scripture. The secular world, because they're not standing on the uh, authority of God's Word, sometimes they can do some good science, but sometimes their conclusions and things can go go way off the mark, and sometimes they don't understand why. So, you know, the way we do it, starting with the Bible, looking at science, uh, things actually make a lot of sense. Let's look, of the uh, disciplines. Yeah. I, I let's, was just going to say...
1: Yeah, go ahead. All those disciplines, archaeology, science, whatever it is, logic, reason, uh, those are just, those disciplines only make sense in
0: a theistic worldview. That's right. Um, You know, just look at biology. One of the few laws in biology is the law of biogenesis. It states that life comes from life, not non-life. Well, that destroys an evolutionary worldview right there because they believe in abiogenesis, that life had to come from matter. Well, that actually goes against the law of biogenesis. Well, life comes from life. Uh, that's what we expect in a biblical worldview. Uh, even the very first life here on Earth ultimately came from God, who is the ultimate life. So even that law of biogenesis is a great confirmation of what we read in Scripture. Second law of thermodynamics. I know I'm – hopefully I'm not scaring everybody. You probably <laughs> have a lot of theological no. people out here yeah. Get a science guy on here. But the uh, second law of thermodynamics, you know, teaches that things in a closed system go from an ordered state to a disordered state. Well, look at the universe as a whole. Where did the order come from in the first place? Um, the only way that could possibly occur is by, by God's hand. You know, in the secular world, they want to say, well, it, it popped into existence from nothing. There was no time, no nothing. It popped into existence. It was almost infinitely dense and almost infinitely hot. Um, and then it's been degrading ever since then, that's all just conjecture. That's just arbitrary storytelling. Uh, when you look at it, uh, according to their view, if you look closely, you cannot get uh, the order in the universe. There's just no sense uh, it within their own worldview. So that's a great confirmation of the Bible. But see, when we look at these different laws over and over again, when you have a proper understanding of it, they're a great confirmation of Scripture.
2: Yeah, and I think the other thing that you end up seeing <clears throat> is that, if you don't start with the Bible, and I know I've heard Ken Ham say this, not exactly this way, but if you don't start with the Bible, right, you start with evidence, someone else is going to have different evidence, right? Mm-hmm. The, the Bible's the answer. And, and that's yeah. what makes it so important to say, well, can we trust it? Because if, if we can't trust the Bible, and yet we're saying that's the standard, what does that end up doing with everything that we're going to hold to and believe? Yeah.
0: Yeah. The Bible's got to be that standard. Um, you know, just when I was involved in that world religions and cult book series, it's interesting. I would see this in, in every other religion, they want to look at something, but they want to start with their own ideas to look at it, whether it's humanism, whether it's Hinduism, you know, they're appealing to people, you know, in an atheistic worldview or humanistic worldviews, you know, they're appealing to people like Charles Lyell or Charles Darwin and their viewpoints on different things. You look at Hinduism, they're appealing to ancient sages. You look at different cults, they're appealing to a particular person. Uh, Even, you know, different uh, uh, religions like Buddhism and Confucianism, you're appealing to a particular person, and in every case, they've taken people away from God and His Word. And guess what? All those religions run into massive numbers of problems. It all comes down to authority. Either God is the ultimate authority, or man is the ultimate authority. And so that's where it comes down to. Now, that actually relates to a fallacy. I love logic. I've written a lot on logic as well. And uh, there's a fallacy in logic called a faulty appeal to authority. Let me kind of explain that. Let, let, let's say you got some sort of a medical problem. You can go to a doctor who is an expert on that particular medical problem. They have spent 20 years researching it. They got their degree specializing in that. Or you can go to a kindergartner and say, what's my, uh, uh, what's my assessment? You know, the kindergartner, hey, go have some M&Ms and and you'll be all right tomorrow. (laughs) Um, You see, that would be a faulty appeal to authority because the kindergartner has no authority next to that doctor. When it comes to every other subject, the greatest authority in every single matter is God. And so when we reject God and go with some sort of man's ideas, you've already committed the fallacy of faulty appeal to authority right off the bat. As soon as someone wants to object, so I don't believe the Bible or I don't trust Genesis, they committed the faulty appeal to authority fallacy right from the start
2: yeah well, <laughs> most people don't understand logic and fallacies to start but <laughs> so, yeah so so let's dig into the the question i mean can can we trust the bible what, what the argument that we'll get and we can go through some of the arguments that people give uh the Bible has been edited over hundreds of years ago it, it's a it's an old book we don't have original copies people changed it. How do you know you can trust it if people have been changing it over time?
0: Yeah, you know, that's, that's actually considered a prejudicial conjecture, because when people actually study that subject, um, that's not really what's happening. People aren't just going through there making changes, This sort of thing. And uh, I love the fact that we have massive number of ancient copies of the Scriptures. Uh, if you just look at the New Testament alone, we have over 24,000 copies and fragments, uh, over 5,000 just in Greek. So it's it's not difficult to say okay let's take a look at this and figure out what is the text actual saying and I and I know you've uh, uh, done some writing on this as well this is called textual criticism and uh, textual criticism is not an attack on scripture It's trying to actually look uh, what what is the actual verses saying you know sometimes words are spelt different uh, over time sometimes the grammar is flipped around so, you know but you can you can look at these uh, different uh, ancient texts. And determine what it is easily, and you know a, a good comparison to that. Uh, some of the other writings of the ancient world, we don't have very many copies of their stuff. Uh, whether it's Plato, Plato, you know, I used to read Plato, and nobody ever questioned that Plato wrote Plato. And yeah, we only have a handful of copies of, of uh, what he's done, and many of them are separated significantly from when Plato actually lived. Yet the New Testament is nothing like that. But when it comes to the Old Testament, uh, you know, we have a number of different texts. Uh, that uh, have uh, Old Testament texts. We have some early translations, the Latin Vulgate. We have the uh, Septuagint. So we have a number of things like that. But, you know, I mean, Jesus affirmed the Old Testament, you know, so it's not like we have to go back to the time of David to affirm it. So, you know, when we look at those kinds of subjects, yeah, the text can be trusted. That's not a problem. But most people, they just don't understand it. And they want to throw out those stories. Oh, some monk in the Dark Ages probably re-edited or changed it. But, you know, the texts we find all over the, the Middle East, uh, North Africa, they all agree with each other. Uh, so that's not a problem. In fact, I, I I read an apologist once that said if you take all the variant readings in uh, the New Testament and put it on an 8.5 by 11 sheet of paper, you could fit it on both sides. And yet none of those have anything to do with any significant theological differences or anything like that. So it's not much at all. When
1: people say that that scripture has been changed over time, nobody can ever point to that. In order to make that claim, they have to be able to show what it was and then what it has become. And they can't just assume that they know what it was when there's no manuscript that that would reflect what they say that it was. Right. right.
0: Yeah, we deal a lot with that uh, with regards to Islam. You know, they want to call these conflicts uh, when there's a variant. But, you know, in their their same Quran, I mean, you see the same sort of variants. Um, I know they destroyed a lot of early ones, you know, back in the early days, you know, because they had some of those variants, but um, you know, there's, there's those types of issues, but just because you read a variant doesn't mean it's a conflict. And so we have to be very careful of, of those types of claims that people make too. So, Yeah. When they, when they make
1: this, when they say the word conflict, are they talking about a contradiction? Are they saying that that's a contradiction?
0: Yeah. I, I think that's what they're trying to imply when they see yeah. a variant, you know, like, oh, well, this word is spelt a little bit different. Um, that's. It's not a conflict at all. It's not a yeah. contradiction by any means. It's, you know, there's nothing wrong with that sort of thing. So,
2: and that's actually yeah. an interesting subject with Islam because most of them. It's amazing with Islam. We're t- you were talking logic. I-, I tell this when I teach on evangelizing to to different groups like Muslims. <clears throat> you will watch them throw logic right out the window. They will understand that <clears throat> in their history, their own history. You know, the third caliph Uthman had because they had the Quran supposedly memorized, you know, in Mm -hmm. verbally, they needed to write it down as their soldiers were being destroyed. And it was like, well, okay, what we need to do is write this down. And so he had the soldiers and there weren't that many of them that wrote it down, but he put he gathered them all as they wrote them down and, and his own decree said, we have to burn the abhorrent texts that right there means yeah. they had variances, right? They had, they had right. different ones. In fact, some of them he calls abhorrent, which means these are not like little contradictions. And so I'd right. like to bring that up. And one of the things um there's a guy in, in the UK, what he actually do is take all the Quran's in Arabic in yeah. different regions and shows that there's, there's variances today in, in the Quran but when you when you start that way you can control the text and say okay we only have one but we right. we know from their own history that there's those and if they're abhorrent, it must have affected it, i'm assuming calling it a porn affected doctrine and that's why he would want to burn them but you look at the new testament or you look at the bible and you realize that when you look at these and say okay which ones are meaningful changes mm-hmm. so you you mentioned spelling mistakes that's not meaningful. We can get back to the original. So we look at whether it's meaningful and viable, whether we can get back to the original. And so spelling mistakes, punctuation, which there was no punctuation in the original, that's 75% of them. There's only 1% in the category where it's a meaningful change and we can't get back to the original. Those are the ones, like you were saying, you could put on two pieces of paper. And yeah. it doesn't affect a single doctrine. We wouldn't call any of it abhorrent. I mean, it's things like... Was Jesus a carpenter or the son of a carpenter? Well, the meaning does change there. We can't get back to the original, but big deal. Like, does does that affect
0: any doctrine? (laughs) Right. And a lot of times, you know, if your dad's a carpenter, you're a carpenter too. So they might. So they could both be uh, true. Right. Yes. Uh, You know, so it it doesn't really affect it one way or another. You know, I know uh, when, when dealing with a lot of these different world religions, you know, Islam is probably one of the biggest ones people want to throw up, say, well, They've got an equal and opposite book. They say, you know, well, why why the Bible next, you know, compared to the Quran? Or, you know, sometimes people want to say that about Jehovah's Witnesses. Well, they got their scriptures, or Mormons, they got their scriptures. Um, you know, the problem with, you know, people trying to bring those up is Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Muslims, they all generally agree that the Bible is true. And that surprises a lot of people. Uh, in, in the Quran, a number of times it says that the Bible's true. You know, I've got a whole lists of the verses that say it. Uh, repeatedly, it affirms that the Bible is true, but then it goes about to contradict the Bible. Well, all of a sudden, that actually puts their religion into a problem when they say that the Bible is true, but then they deviate from it. Uh, you know, in the Quran, it says that no one can uh, change the word of God, you know, which means the Bible shouldn't have been able to change. And yet, here they are arguing that the Bible's verses have changed. Yet, at the same time, in the Quran, it says that its verses have changed. Just to give you an idea, that's uh, six uh, surah, that's chapter. Uh, 34 and uh, chapter 1034 in comparison to Surah 2 106 uh, Surah fifteen ninety uh, through 91 and 16 uh, 101 that's just you know, I don't want to throw all these numbers out there but I just want to have a reference uh, so people realize that we're not I, I'm not just throwing some of this out I pulled it up but other little things you know uh, uh, the Quran claims that the, the triune Christian God is actually three different gods the father mother and the son And that, I mean, no Christian holds to anything like that. It's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, But they say that two different times in Surah 5, uh, 73 through 75, and in 116. So, you know, we see that uh, uh, a number of different times. And these things kind of surprise people because they want to say these are equal and opposite, but they're really not. They're affirming that the Bible's true, but then they're the ones that are making the contradiction and the deviations.
2: Yeah, I remember I was debating Joshua Evans, and I brought up that exact issue that you you mentioned, and when I brought up the Trinity and said the Father, the Mother, and the Son, there were a lot of heads going like this until Joshua Evans, who grew up in a Christian home, knew what the trinity actually is and he's like no 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 no, we don't believe that and all these heads went from up and down to no (laughs) it was amazing how they just followed the lead and i I always wished that i had the video like on them (laughs) so that i could show because they most of those in the audience didn't know the bible and this is the thing that i end up finding with muslims is i will ask I it was in New York City, and uh, a guy that that you may know of, but uh, Anthony Silvestro, who who I do ministry with, we were in New York, and he he like he saw this family of Muslims, and he goes, "Hey, yeah, that my my friend over there, he'll Andrew, raise your hand, he'll talk to you." And so this this family came over. He just didn't want to deal with addressing Islam as he was doing open air evangelism. <laughs> so this whole uh. family comes over, and they're telling me, this guy he he is a he is a professor at a university, teaches PhD students. So he's not an unintelligent man, right, but I watched right. him throw logic out the window over and over. And he goes, he said, yeah. well, you, I, and he goes, I know, I understand Christianity. Well, you believe in three gods. And I said, no, we don't No. Nope. And so literally we got 25 evangelists out there and I'm grabbing one after another, just asking him to find the Trinity to find the Trinity and after like six or seven people. He goes, okay, I get it. I get it. Right. And so this was the thing I ended up leaving him with was, here's the thing. Have I misrepresented your religion at all? And he goes, no. I said, but over and over again, you've misrepresented ours. The, the definition of the Trinity, yeah. these aren't small things. Definition of the Trinity, The who who is the Trinity? The And, and mm-hmm. some Christians may have heard you say that and go, what? But they would argue that the Trinity is made up of the Father, the Mother, and the Son. That mm-hmm. we believe Mary is God even Catholics deny that, though they put her they give her right. attributes of deity. And they, so, you know, I can understand why, you know, we would make the argument that they mm-hmm. actually put her up there, right? Yeah. But for a lot of Christians they, they probably heard you Bodhi go and went, What? Because they probably yeah. don't know the Quran so well. But Muslims don't know the Bible so well. So they right. they look at this stuff and they, they their starting source is the Quran and then they say, Well, the Bible's wrong because the Bible doesn't agree with the Quran. And yet
0: the Bible was the one written first, right? It's like, okay. So, yeah. and see, that's a big point. I'm actually glad you mentioned that because you're supposed to use previous scripture to judge any later scripture. That's always been the principle in the Bible. You Use Moses to look at the prophets. You use the old Testament to look at the new Testament. And that's what we saw. We saw Paul arguing for Christ, not from what was being newly written, but from the old Testament. So you stand on the previous scripture to judge any later scripture. So when it comes to something like the Quran or the Book of Mormon or whatnot, you're supposed to be using the Bible to judge those. How convenient is it for people to come up with something new and say, "Well, I'm going to use this as my standard to judge the old"? How convenient! Um, believe it or not, Baha'i does that to Islam. They say, "Well, no, there's another prophet, or you know, or actually a few others that come after um, Muhammad, and now we're going to rejudge." Islam, so they're doing to Islam what Islam is trying to do to Christianity, but now they have it back to front. You use previous scripture to judge the latter,
2: which is kind of interesting because that's actually what Islam says, right? The way they explain earlier passage, yeah. like things that were written earlier in time in the Quran. Well, if there's something written later, they'll say, "Well, okay, we start with that, but then it's superseded.
0: So right. it's abrogated. It's yeah. abrogated.
2: So yeah. they they have that doctrine." But they don't yep. apply that, that doctrine to. So what they say instead of saying, "Well, the the Quran abrogated the Bible," they just say the Bible was changed. And yet, as you have pointed out, in the Quran uh, it says that the Quran, in inside the Quran, that the the book, and that's what they'll refer to it mm-hmm. as, the book cannot be changed. The words of God can't be changed. And they'll refer to the people of the book. <clears throat> that's one of the things I find amazing. When we we talk about like textual criticism in Islam. They will say in the Quran, that you can trust the people of the book and that the book, the, the, you know, the Bible, the book, the Bible is accurate. Bible, all right. <clears throat> now, here's the thing. The Quran came about, uh, Muhammad was in 700 AD. And so <clears throat> the, the thing we could actually do in textual criticism is say, okay, in 700 AD, do we have copies of the Bible that would be in Muhammad's day? Yeah, yes. hundreds of them. Yeah. And we can compare them to the Bible today. Mm -hmm. any changes Bodhi? no
0: it's surprisingly (laughs) accurate (laughs) Uh, you know and we even have it in multitudes of languages we have uh you know the latin Vulgate. we have the septuagint uh you know we have it in uh you know syriac and so forth so we we see it already in a multitude of languages and they all actually agree with each other as well so you know that's a big one now i i know a lot of muslims uh you know sometimes they don't understand christianity one of the things that I've always encouraged them to do is go back and read the Bible. Um, you know, I, I prefer they actually start in Genesis, but you know, at the very least, uh, read the New Testament. See what the Bible says for itself. Uh, because like you said, so many of these guys, they don't know what the Bible's actually teaching. They don't understand the theology from the Bible. Just encourage them to go back and read it. The Bible, uh, uh, the Word of God, that is, never comes back void. So if we can get them, get them into it, uh, that, that's a big encouragement.
2: Yeah. So, so we answered the question of people say that it's been edited and been changed. Mm-hmm. Um, some people will say that the Bible's not reliable because it's so old. You know, therefore, you know, you you mentioned some of the the, the other writings. I mean, right. I, I, w- one thing I do find always interesting: um, people don't question the Gospel of Mary Magdalene. The, you know the. the code the da Vinci code was based off of this this and yet so few people realize that we have one copy of that of that document and -hmm. it's in French it's it's not even in an original language so we know it's got to be old enough that the French language was created and and from the the fact of what we have we know there's more missing than we actually have because Mm -hmm. some of it was was just time got destroyed and the whole purpose of it was to prove that the the uh, French emperors were descendants of Jesus, so we could see a political motive in it, and yet no one questions that book, uh, and we have one copy. Why does it become mm-hmm. important when we look at comparing that and people trust that, or they believe the, the works of you know, the life right. of Julius Caesar, where we have only a handful of copies, I think like a dozen copies, why do the number of copies affect th- this understanding of trusting the Bible?
0: Well, the more copies you have, the more uh, reliable it really is. Uh, so it's, it's, it's almost a, a too simple of a concept, but so many people miss it. But when you have a multitude of these copies, particularly ancient copies, it allows us to see what the original text was. Um, and when you see these different texts and you bring them together and you can compare them, and go like, oh, well, guess what? They match up. Guess what? They match up. Guess what? They match up. Uh, We can be pretty certain that these were the texts that people were copying as they go about. And you know what? Yeah, people are going to make grammatical mistakes. They're going to do little copyist glitches or punctuation. That's going to happen, Uh, especially when you look at variations in languages. Uh, You know, when I did that book on the Tower of Babel, you know, languages change. Uh, They're they're constantly changing. You know, I I marry a lady who is from Australia. And let's just face it, that's a whole different language. (laughs) It's English, but it's different. Um, You know, I've been to Canada. Hey, take off. Uh, We're we're about to get to States. You know, it's a different language. Tennessean is a different language. Um, When I went to England, there's actually a multitude of variations of English just in England. And yet English is considered a Germanic language. So when you think back, even at the time of the New Testament, being copied and going to different places, you've got variations in the Greek. You've got variations in a lot of different things. So sometimes these people are copying it. They want to put it into a local variant. And there really wasn't anything wrong with that. That communicated to their local audience, and that was actually correct grammar. But we look at that today and we say, oh, we see some of these variations. That's a, is that a bad thing? Not necessarily. It actually shows the reliability compared to something like Plato or you know some of these uh, New Testament apocryphal books or, or stuff that's lit, written long, long later. Um, You know, like that French uh, copy there. I, I suggest that was something written way later, uh, probably just as a story. You know, people write stories all the time, um, you know, and people do plays and things like that. So we had to be very careful of that sort of thing. But we still see that even today among a host of subjects. You guys remember when that the, the Noah movie came out with Russell Crowe? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's just a rewrite of what we read in the Bible that was so bad, so atrocious, and so unbiblical, it's not even funny. And the sad part is people watch that, and they go, oh, wow, that's what Christians believe? That That's in the Bible? You see, I mean, people are doing that all the time, and yet people don't question, you know, that script. They don't question those types of things as much. But when it comes to the Bible, they want to question it, even though there is no doubt we've got the scriptural support for it.
2: There, there's someone who I know mm-hmm. who actually believes that the mountain ranges – are are basically uh, rock giants that died. Where do you get that? I've never heard any of that before I think the I was Noah the movie. Harbit.
0: The movie The Hobbit oh, is worth extra. Oh, okay, maybe. <laughs> know.
2: You know, it's, it's funny because you mentioned I, the Noah movie with Russell Crowe. I, I actually, my wife and I, we didn't pay to watch it. We are cheap. We go to the library. I'm not going to give them money, but the library gives it for free. So we got it when it was out in the library. And I literally took notes. I wanted to see how many things they got right that were biblical. I counted six. And I mean, that included they got the names right. Yeah. It was a big ark, there was a flood. Yeah. I mean, I had to go that level. They couldn't yeah. even get the number of people that were on the ark right because they got no, that no, wrong. I, I mean, <laughs> yeah. I was trying and I could only come up with like six things.
0: That's well, how know, that unbiblical it movie... was. You know, here at Answers in Genesis, people are already asking us before the movie ever came out, what's the movie going to be like? Of course, we hadn't seen it. So we got a whole group of researchers. We grab our tablets and we all go there, right? I'm not kidding. Within the first minute, we're all (laughs) looking at each other and we're writing so fast. We're like, there's so many things wrong. We can't can't keep track of all of them. Uh, It really was that bad. Uh,
2: See, I, I took the easier route. Probably because yes. I heard of everyone else by the time I saw right. it, I said, I just counted how many things they got right. It was a much easier way of doing it.
0: Well, I, I kept thinking if they would have switched the names uh, Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth and put other names in there, no they one probably knows. could have released it as an epic film and nobody would have had any idea this had any inkling to do with the Bible.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's interesting you talk about languages because, and I don't know if there's articles uh, that you guys have at Answers and Genesis on this, but I remember, I, I I take a lot of different courses when I would I would run, I would watch or listen to courses from great courses. Uh, again, I got my library to buy them all because they're very expensive, and then I took courses on all different types of, of subjects. And one that I thought was fascinating at the time was a course that I took on languages. And They were explaining how you can actually watch how people move around the world by their language, how it morphs, how it changes. You get someone from one area, they move into another area, and they start to get a a mix. I mean, I grew up hearing Yiddish. What is Yiddish? It's, It's a combination of German and Hebrew. And so it's it's a very common thing that was was spoken, especially, you know, by Jewish people after the Holocaust. So, But what is that? That's two languages merging together. And you could see how people move around the world. And the thing yeah. I thought was the most interesting thing with it was the professor explained that there are what they call proto-languages, first languages. He said there was 12 to 13, and the reason there's a, a th- possibility is there's a click language where they just make clicking noises. Yeah. And so it's not speaking, it's clicking. But he argued it does have a grammar that defines a language. Some people don't define it as a language. So so 12 or 13, and here was the thing I thought so fascinating. You got 12 or 13 proto-languages, first languages, that, that aren't from something else. All these other languages we have are combinations of other languages or morphe, morphing languages. And- yeah. And so you look at that and you go, Well, where did those all begin? I mean, if evolution was true, would that mean that suddenly someone in China, you have a a person who they they all spoke one language or spoke no language is really what it have to be. And they spoke no language and migrated. And then different areas, they all just started speaking a language. I mean, to me, that was an argument I'd make for the Tower of Babel that just blew people's minds on the streets because they never heard the argument. I always look for arguments people never heard of. No one knew anything about proto-languages, and so I would start speaking about that, and, and I don't know any other, mm-hmm. I haven't seen any other Christians bring that up. I know you guys yeah. are working on a Tower of Babel over there at the, yeah. Uh, at the Ark. Um,
0: yeah, we do. We, we've got researchers behind the scenes, but there have been a number of people that have done it and given lectures on it. Uh, even in that book, The Tower of Babel, I go through some of that and uh, you know, give a little bit of history, you know, because there are certain root languages that come out of Babel, And then those root languages tend to change. Some of them have gone extinct, actually. Some of them, we don't know exactly where they went and which languages they became. But others, we can actually trace pretty well, uh, which is kind of a a neat little aspect. You know, uh, one uh, root language was the language of Eber. That's Peleg's father. Uh, Eber became Eberu or Heberu. That's where the Hebrew languages came from. And you have Arabic that came out of that. You got the Chaldean languages, east and west, that came out of it. Uh, Edomite, uh, Biblical Hebrew, even modern Hebrew, you know, they all have those roots that go back to that. So you see those variations in those languages. Uh, the Germanic language family actually goes back to uh, Noah's grandson, great-grandson specifically, Ashkenaz, uh, who settled up in that particular region, and we still see a reflection of his name, Ascandinavia or Asaxon. So those names still reflect, but a lot of times people don't put those together because they don't realize where it came from. And, uh, you know, English is kind of a mixture language between German and the, the French Norman when the Normans conquered England and the two languages mixed. But uh, I don't want to scare everybody with that. But the, the point is, as we study languages and different linguists look at this sort of thing, it really does, I, I would say, provide good support. It's, it's a good confirmation, now, if you will, of what we read in Scripture, particularly Genesis chapter 10 and the breakdown of these different languages. So, yeah, there are people doing that. uh, And I know a lot of people who translate the Bible are some of the people behind the scenes, at least studying some of these languages, uh, trying to get into these various languages uh, all around the world, especially some of the newer places. Now, I don't want to scare people, but people are are creative. They can come up with new languages. And we have a lot of new languages that have uh, been developed. There's Just think of something like Morse code. That's essentially a type of language that's been created. Uh, Esperanto is a created or constructed language. And there are people out there nowadays speaking Klingon. Uh, That's officially a type of language. Um, But it also shows the brilliance of a creative mind being made in the image of a creative God. Uh, So, you know, I I see even that kind of stuff as a confirmation of uh, of what we read in uh, the early pages of Genesis. Hey, Bodhi, yeah. um, how, many, how many languages did you say
1: all, all the languages could go back to? When, when Andrew talks about having 12 or 13 root or original languages, what would we postulate was uh, actually split up at the Tower of Babel? How many would there have started with then?
0: Yeah, well, I, I know we always have to be very careful of the secular world whenever they throw out some of their numbers, because out in the secular world, they have a motive to try to get it down to a single proto-language some sort of grunting type of thing that came out of Africa from some dumb brute. Um, But when you look at Genesis chapter 10, I would say that there's probably a minimum of somewhere between 70 and 78 uh, root languages. Like I said, some of those have disappeared. So we don't see those reflected today because they've been conquered. They've been assimilated so much that we've lost some of that. Um, So somewhere in that neighborhood. Now I, I say a minimum number there, Because when you look at Genesis chapter 10 and it breaks down the descendants of uh, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, it gives you a listing of all these people that came out with new languages. And if you tally that up, you get a certain number there. Uh, Some of them are cities that could have been named for a son. So there's a little questionability in there. Um, So that's why I say, you know, around 78-ish or so. But at the same time, Hmm. Shem's line doesn't, doesn't give you everyone in Shem's line. Uh, in Genesis chapter 11, when it re-picks up Shem's line, you see that there were other sons and daughters in there. So there might've been some others there too. So when it comes to those root languages, I like to give a range. uh, But at the same time, we always have to be very careful about what the secular world says. But I love the fact that the secular world, they're doing everything they can to get it down to one proto-language, and they can't. You know, they stop at, you know, like the, the, the 12 or 14, and they're like, we just, there's just no way these languages come together because they're so incredibly different. You can't, you can't even make a case for it.
1: Yeah. And and we're really dealing with a lot of presuppositions that go into numbering that as well. In the secular Mm -hmm. world, their presuppositions would include that we have to, or we can go back to one proto language. They're Mm -hmm. really not using anything as a guide other than the presupposition that man evolved from a primitive state and we all would have spoke the same language at some point, which you and I would agree that all of humanity spoke a common language at one point, but they want to eliminate the flood, the tower of Babel. And so their presupposition is that we can get back to that original number. Our presupposition is that you can, that at one point there was an original language, but that there was an instantaneous explosion and languages were created out of thin air by, by God who confused the languages of humanity.
0: And, and notice how it all comes back together. You know, sometimes we miss this at Pentecost. Uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we gotta see see those languages come back together and it shocked people uh in that yeah. day. So I think I think it'll give us a taste of what it's gonna be like in heaven. you know, seeing all that come back together.
2: So. so you you're hoping that eventually you'll be able to speak Australian? Is
0: it- oh my. <laughs> I don't know if I can ever master that one. <laughs> so Right after I got married, my wife yelled out the window, Hey uh bring up the Esky. <laughs> What's an Esky? <laughs> So I literally went to the truck, grabbed everything out of it. I laid it out in the kitchen. I'm going to figure out what an Esky is. And she walked right over and grabbed the cooler. Esky, Eskimo, cold. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, I would never figure that one out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's,
2: I always tell a story. I had a friend of mine. He, was, um, you know, he went down to South America to speak, and he, he said the phrase, you could take a hike which they didn't understand. They don't know hitchhiking. And he took his thumb, put it in the air. As we we understand in America to hitchhike, you put your thumb in the air and you, you, with your fingers closed and you just raise it up and down as if you, you know, for people to know, Hey, I'm trying to hitch a ride. I want to ride down the, down the road. And the guy, the translator is, was looking at the ground because he didn't know what take a hike means, but then heard an audible gasp. And he looked at the crowd and then looked at the speaker, and the, the speaker's doing his hand signal. The guy takes his hand, puts it down, and and asks him, what does take a hike mean? So he explains it. Then he translates my friend who was the speaker realized something happened and he asked him afterwards. And basically in that country, the way to pick up a prostitute is to put your hand in the air oh. that way. And so here the the translator's silent because he doesn't know what take a hike means. And this guy's doing this obscene gesture, right? Oh, and he doesn't know, he doesn't know, but yeah. that actually happens with culture. And so when we look at the Bible, this is one of the things that people often do. We look at our culture and we read the Bible in our culture and try to mm-hmm. say, well, for example, you know, we, we talked earlier about Islam. One of the things many Muslims will say to me is the Bible never says that Jesus is God. There's nowhere where it says Jesus is God. And, and the way that they'll phrase it, and I had this with the debate with Joshua Evans, he says, nowhere in the Bible does Jesus say, I am God, worship me. And I sat there and I agreed, and which he's surprised. I said, that's, like, act, that's absolutely right. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that exact phrase. And nowhere in the Quran does it say, this is the Quran written by Muhammad, or you know, from Muhammad, and it's from God. It does, that exact phrase doesn't exist either. Therefore, the right. Quran, we could throw it out, right? <laughs> right? Yeah. How much is it that, how much does culture play into the reliability of the scriptures?
0: Well, it, it plays in a mess, especially when you're reading the, the context of what's going on in different situations. Um, and I would say that a lot of people who claim that there are contradictions in the Bible uh, is probably because they, A, haven't read the context or they don't understand the actual situation that was going on back in that culture. You know, I mean, just, just think of little things like, you know, Jesus has, you know, cast a legion out. This is a legion of demons that had inhabited someone. He casts them out into the pigs and then they run over the cliff. Well, at that time, they're not supposed to be eating pigs anyway. You know, so somebody shouldn't be doing that in the first place. There go the pigs. Everybody was a bit upset. But, hey, guess what? Uh, In the old covenant, you weren't allowed to eat pigs. They were considered unclean. Swine was unclean. It wasn't until later on that Jesus declared all foods clean. Now you can eat the pigs. Jesus just got rid of the last of the unclean ones. uh, uh, But I don't know. He did it like that. but, uh, But, But sometimes people don't understand, well, why did Jesus go out there and attack all those pigs? That's that's people's food. See, they're not understanding the culture of the times. And so sometimes they run into some of those problems. But that's just one of many instances. There's so many things, especially you go all the way back to the time of Abraham, you know, that people don't understand those little intricacies. And so they try to read it as though it was written here in the United States or in England. And and they struggle. Uh, with some of those things, and that's why I like to encourage people, go back, uh, when they're reading the Bible, Mm -hmm. don't be afraid to dive into some of the old commentaries, just to get a little bit better understanding of the situation uh, before they go off and try to make any attacks on the Bible.
2: Yeah, you know, just recently, this past week, I was, the past week when we are recording, uh, I was preaching through Mark 13, and came upon one that many people struggle with, and that's where Jesus seems, I mean, we say Jesus is God, so he's all-knowing, and yet there's a passage where it seems like Jesus is saying he doesn't know something, that he doesn't know the day or the hour, Mm -hmm. only the Father knows. And this is a thing where, and I've heard people explain this and say how, well, in his humanity he doesn't know something, but in his deity he does, some try to try to split those two, which is a heresy. Some try to explain that he laid down his divine attributes, which becomes a problem as well. Some just say he he, he willingly just didn't exercise those attributes, which we do see him doing that at times, where the exercise of them, he still has them. But to say he doesn't know something, and I, I see people struggle with that. And I, I said to my congregation, the thing is, when I was, uh, w- when I first heard this preached, my pastor spent a lot of time trying to explain this, like 20 minutes trying to explain this. And I came up to him afterwards and said, why didn't you just explain that as a Jewish idiom? And he was like, it is? And so I ended up realizing that I, I mean, I heard that growing up in a Jewish home. It's a reference to a marriage where the father would basically, someone get a house ready, get it together. And he doesn't know the day or the hour he's going to go get married. Only the father knows. And it's a phrase to, to say, you, you should have to live an expected lifestyle, like any time is the, any moment is the moment. Which, if you yeah. look at the context, is exactly <laughs> what yeah. that talks about. And so, when you look at the culture and understand the time, and, so, and we don't always have things that help us with that, but mm-hmm. if we understand some of the idioms, it, it saves us from getting into where people will say, see, here's a, here's a contradiction in the Bible. Jesus is supposedly God and knows all things, but here he admits he doesn't. And I've heard people try to make that argument, and it's like, well, it's a Jewish idiom. It's like saying, I'm so hungry I can eat a cow. I'm sure you think I wouldn't actually be able to eat a cow, and it's probably because you didn't, you've never saw me eat when I was much younger. Let's now, go hit the sack.
0: <laughs> huh? Let's go hit the sack. Yeah. That's another one. You know, just, uh, you know sometimes people don't understand some of that phraseology. And, uh, you know, sometimes I kind of wish that uh, certain translations of the Bible would actually nail some of that stuff just a little bit better. You know, sometimes people really want to be word for word, but then you miss those idioms. Well, and in some of those
2: cases, have to change with time, because. and this is what the, even the King James writer uh, translators knew. They wrote it in the prefix, right, that yeah. language is going to change. And that's right. not a contradiction either when we have that. Mm-hmm. And I guess that is something we should mention. When when you speak to people like Muslims uh, or, or other groups, when they say there's contradictions in the Bible, they're usually talking English translations. <laughs>
0: yeah. Right. So,
2: so, is a different English translation, so we have uh, King James, New King James, ESV, uh, Legacy Standard Bible, which is, just came out, you have these different ones, they're going to word it differently, are those contradictions, Bodie?
0: No, they're not, you know, uh, an alleged contradiction, uh, you know, somebody at least wants to try to bring one up, they really need to go back and compare it to original language text, because, you know, when it comes to translations, people can make those mistakes, um, but, yeah, the, the key is uh, in the original. In fact, a lot of people's statements of faith, and we have that here at Answers in Genesis, is the the text is inerrant in the original autographs is the way we oftentimes like to word that or, 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 or phrase that. So that people have to be very careful saying, well, here, this English translation says this, and they kind of mess it up. And a lot of times I've had people want to bring that up, and they want to say, well, see, look, the message says this. Well, that's kind of a paraphrase in the first place, you know, so we have to be very careful of the thought for thought kind of things where you can get some of those glitches, the word for word, where it's a lot more accurate, but sometimes you miss the idioms. So, you know, trying to have a good balance in there is probably the best, but I know that's a, that's a whole book in and of itself to to write up all (laughs) those, but. Yeah. So getting if I can insert something here Andrew um
1: getting back to something that's connected to the reliability of scripture is the issue of sufficiency and this is something that yes. I've written on um is the bible sufficient that we can make the case that the bible is accurate and true and yet there are many Christians who would affirm that that the bible is inspired it's inerrant it's infallible it's true we can trust it it's been accurately translated it's been accurately transmitted Um, we can have confidence that what is written today reflects what was originally written and, and they can make that entire case and believe all of that. And yet at the same time, not believe that scripture itself is sufficient for all of life and godliness. And these are two things that though they're separate, they really are connected. If the Bible is true, it's also sufficient. So maybe you could talk for a moment just about the connection between those two items, those two, uh, those two positions.
0: Yeah, that, that's really good. You know, uh, in, in the book of Jude, it talks about, uh, you know, the faith has once for all been delivered to the saints. Uh, there shouldn't be a question about the sufficiency. That doesn't mean the Bible is giving us all knowledge. It's giving us what is sufficient for us. Um, and at the same time, all scripture is uh, useful for correcting, rebuking, and so forth. So, you know, the, the Bible is sufficient. The 66 books uh, of the Bible, uh, that's that's our our standard right there. We don't need anything else. But that's where it gets interesting because a lot of the cults and a lot of groups that want to add something to the Bible or take something away from the Bible, that's where they're attacking. They're attacking the doctrine of sufficiency to say, okay, well, now let's add, say, the Book of Mormon or doctrines and covenants. Or they want to add the Koran or whatever it might be. Uh, they're attacking the sufficiency of Scripture. But once again, use previous Scripture to judge the latter, and that's usually not a problem.
2: Correct. Well, Bodie, how could folks get a hold of you if they want to learn more? I mean, obviously, they could go to Answers in Genesis, and, and I have the link uh, from Answers in Genesis in the show notes, uh, and they could see you've written quite a number of articles, quite a number of books, so they could they could just go. I'm sure Answers in Genesis would not mind if they would go to the bookstore and just buy everything that you've written, I'm sure.
0: That's right. Yeah, <laughs> they sure could. Uh, yeah, answers in uh you know, of course, if they come to the Creation Museum or the Ark Encounter, uh, you know, a lot of the books are uh, featured in there as well. Um, I, I do want to encourage people, uh, hop on the website. You know, there's there's so much to read on our website. You know, I mean, we refute things like evolution, millions of years, and uh, but we also refute uh, false religions and so forth. But there's so much on our website uh, that I've written or even that some of my colleagues have written or a lot of the stuff on there I've actually reviewed over it. Um, so I've still got my fingerprint on it, whether you see some of that or not. But they may as well bookmark our website, AnswersInGenesis.org, because they could spend millions of years on our website. Uh, <laughs> so just, oh, my jokes go downhill after a while. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. but, yeah, a number of books. Um, you know, I write most of the stuff. I, you know, I want it to come through to a general audience. I mean, junior high, high school kids, adults should be able to read most of it. Every once in a while they might get to something that's kind of a higher level. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've even written some stuff for kids and, uh, you know, but but most things that they see, I, I would say the the general layman in the in the pew should be able to read that and get a lot out of it.
2: Um. You know, I will say this: if it's going to take millions of years to read everything in Answers in Genesis, I, I'll tell you this: what what the audience will need is a good pillow. And so now might be a good time for us to to announce our sponsor, which is My Pillow. Uh, ah. They they are an American made company; all of their products made here in America. And great products. As, as regular listeners, you know, I have been trying m- much of their products. I keep trying every month or so. I try something new. This, this month I got their slippers, which I absolutely love. Uh, and so I work out of the house. So I'm in slippers most of the time. You, Bodhi, your wife was from Australia. My wife was from Hong Kong. So we don't wear shoes in a house. And so ah. I wear slippers. And so, you know, I, I usually go out and get these cheap slippers every year. Because I get them from like Costco or wherever, where they're like 10 bucks. And at the end of the year, they're got holes going through. Well, I have these so far. We'll see how they. I'll give a report at the end of the year and see if I'm throwing them out and getting new ones. <laughs> but they're very, very comfortable, I have to admit. And right now, uh, they're having their a sale, the lowest price ever on their pillows. So if you want to go get a my premium pillow, they're under $30, which is the lowest they've ever been that that I've ever seen. And so you can get an American-made pillow And at the same time if you use promo code SFE that will help to support to support striving for eternity. So just go to mypillow.com Use promo code SFE, or you can call the 1-800 number that they set up just for us, 1-800-873-0176. Again, that's eight hundred eight seven three zero one seven six. 800 873 176 and again, use promo code SFE to get their discounts. So thank you for that. And you might need one, you know, if you're going to read everything that Bodhi said is there, I had answers and because you oh, might this- need to take some naps.
1: Listen, this is a lie. I know you can go through everything on the website in seven literal twenty-four hour days, and you well, can even spend one of them resting.
2: <laughs> there's, you your, there's your transition. The there's your
1: transition to the pillow.
2: Yeah, that would have been a better one. See, you got See, and that's the whole thing. You know, we, we used to Jim, in the old days. We'd play the spiritual transition game, which we haven't played in a while. Maybe maybe yeah. we should play that with Bodhi. So so Bodie, we're gonna let, let's before we end, we'll play a game. And let me find if I still have the music for it. Here's the music, we'll, then we'll, we'll transition into the transition game. It's time now to start the spiritual transition game. Okay, Bodhi, so there's no pressure on you. All the pressure's on me. So what, the, the reason we started this game is because many people uh, think that the hardest thing in evangelism is, is the swing from the natural world to the spiritual world. And most Christians feel if I get into a spiritual conversation, I'm great, then I can handle it. I know the Bible, but how do you get that conversation going? And people pray, Lord, please give me an opportunity. And and I've said for years, you don't need to pray for an opportunity. You just need to make an opportunity. If you practice over and over transitioning from the natural to the spiritual, you could take anything and get into a gospel conversation. So the way this game works, Bodhi, is you're going to come up with something whatever it is, and I got to take whatever you say and transition from that to the gospel. And folks, this part, whenever we play this game, I do not edit this, so if there's long pauses or stupid things I say, (laughs) they remain in there, so you get to see how long it may take me to transition. Um, and, And Bodhi, I will have to admit to you, because people seem to like to do this, is I am pop culture illiterate, so if you give me sports, music bands, Movies, I'm clueless. Okay, <laughs> so anything right. you can think of.
0: All right, you know that's a nice shirt you've got.
2: Not really. It's it's it it looks kind of holy because it has in the in the in the camera at least. <laughs> no, I'm not going that way, Jim. Jim's <laughs>
1: Oh, that was low. That was just that was cheap, man. You got to come up something better than that.
2: Oh, I was I wasn't letting it go there, but I, I just when I looked in the when he said it, I just looked in the camera and realized like the the dots really do look kind of bad. It, it's it's not as clear as the the uh, TV at Answers in Genesis at the Ark Encounter, but you know. The thing we think about with clothes, I mean, why do we even wear clothes if you think about it? Right? We we live in different cultures, different temperatures, different areas where some places need more clothes, some people some areas need less, even at different seasons. Which is an amazing thing to think about that we have these seasons. If we didn't have all these seasons, we we wouldn't survive. I mean the earth is in this perfect rotation where we have the sun is a right distance from the earth to, to be able to have all this. The rotation is just right. So we have different seasons where we can have the winter and the summer. And, and yet even with that, we end up having to change the clothes we wear. But you know, it wasn't actually that way in the beginning, in, in the very beginning that you didn't need that. You didn't need to have all the clothes because everything was a perfect temperature. And, and this is going way back. But what happened? Well, actually the entire universe was affected by something that two people did when they broke the, the commands of God in the garden and ate of fruit and the curse of sin came into the entire world. And, and God even says in Romans chapter 8 that he's going to restore the entire universe at some point. But here's the thing. You and I are in a state where we are in that state where the effect of sin has affected you and I and we both break God's law. And because of that, we are accountable to him. We are criminals in his sight. But God himself came to earth, died on a cross that we could be set free and be forgiven of sin. So that's one way of going from my shirt to the gospel without, without talking about <laughs> holiness there, Jim.
1: <laughs>
2: In that, as far as my shirt being holy. <laughs> but it, it is a practice, folks. If you get used to practicing that game, and my, I've told this many times, my first pastor is the one that got me doing it. But the more you practice, the easier it gets. It's like anything else. Practice makes permanent, not perfect. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is something you learn in martial arts, right? You practice incorrectly, right. and you're going to do it incorrectly. But but the more you practice, the better you're going to get. And you no longer have to say, Lord, please give me an opportunity to share the gospel. You can make that opportunity, even over a shirt someone mentions about you.
0: Yeah. Hey, I've, I've got a question for Jim, you know, as a pastor yeah. take on something. Um, you know, you've got different people that come into your church. Some, you know, they've been there for years. Uh, they're, 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 probably very well articulate in a lot of these types of things, but then you have the person that comes in that knows hardly anything off the street, kind of a person when you preach to a lot of these guys and you want to get into some of these apologetic type subjects, how do you do that from the pulpit knowing that you've got some people that are up here and what they know and other people that are down here? How do you make the rubber hit the road uh, when you deal with some of these apologetic subjects? You know,
1: I, in fact, I just did this this last Sunday. I was preaching on Hebrews eleven three. By faith, we understand that the worlds were formed or prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen is not made out of things that are unseen. And in and I'm just preaching through the book of Hebrews right now. So I didn't I didn't pick that passage because you you and I were going to be talking about creation. I didn't know you and I were going to be having this conversation until late yesterday. So <laughs> um, I. When I preach on a passage like that, there's obviously a lot of apologetic issues that come into it. There's an epistemology is wrapped up in that verse, like how do we know what we know? Um, mm-hmm. Are there things that we know by faith and things that we can know without faith? So the issue of epistemology is in there. Apologetics, I think that there's a presuppositional approach to apologetics in Hebrews 11, 3, that it is by faith and embracing what God says beginning in the book of Genesis that we are actually able to know that certain things happened and so there's that issue. And then, of course, there's just the issue of the nature of faith and, and how that ties into the context. And so uh, on Sunday, when I was addressing that issue, I, I talked a little bit about epistemology, but I tried to make it very, not pop culture, but on a popular level, something that everybody can understand. What what do we mean by what, how, how we know what we know? What is epistemology? And uh, what is a, an, a, a presuppositional approach to apologetics? And then in dealing with some of the objections to the text, I'm trying not just to give the the answer to those objections but i'm trying to give the answer to those objections in a way that clicks with people so that um, when i say that by faith we understand that everything's created out of nothing i would then say that the atheist or the evolutionist also believes that everything came from nothing but they just believe that it came from nothing from by no one and we believe that it came from nothing by someone and of course by faith we understand that there's a logical contradiction in their worldview. And sometimes I think you can just point out that what I try and do is point out that logical contradiction in a humorous, uh, sometimes straightforward, sometimes really uh, um, yeah, just just a blunt way almost. And I think that that, that resonates with different people on different levels. There are going to be people there who, when I say that there's an epistemological view in this verse, they understand exactly what I mean. And then there are other people when I say epistemology just simply means how do I know what we know and how do I justify what I know? And how do I know that what I know, I know, I actually know, you know, I, I can, I can put that down I and know. people are like, oh, okay, <laughs> I understand what epistemology is then suddenly. And you just, you're kind of putting it in a way that I think I, I try and shoot for every everything there. There are going to be kids there that aren't going to understand what I'm saying, but there are going to be adults there that don't understand what I'm saying on some levels. But I, I try and put hay on every level of that as I can and throughout the message so that everybody's walking away with something. I am aware that there are people there that are going to be coming in with with no concept of what I'm talking about or some of those issues that are tying in and uh you know I'm trying to make sure that they're understanding how that what this text means and sometimes I just putting it bluntly and simply uh, I can do that i'm I'm always aware that I've got people at various levels there Gotcha. all right thanks
2: and th- that's actually yeah. the sign Jim of what I would say of, of a, a good Speaker, preacher, pastor—you know, son—that my first pastor drilled into me as well: is, he, he, use the terms, use the big terms. It's don't be afraid of them, yeah. but you mm-hmm. must define them. And I think that's why, like right. at our school, uh, the you know, they're just the Striving Fraternity Academy, we have people who are. Pastors who who watch take those courses, and then we have people that are in homeschooling that take them. And I've always been amazed the homeschoolers because it wasn't geared toward high school or junior high, and yet they learn. And the thing that parents always say is it's exactly that because don't just use the term, but define the term. Now, granted, it might be some of my quirky humor that keeps their attention, but hey, (laughs) at least they're learning. Yeah. But but that's I think that's a thing that many people don't do, and I, I think that. I think there is a, a branch within Christianity where you get guys that want to use the big terms because it, it makes them it makes people look up to them and and look how much they know. I, the worst thing I think someone could say t- to to a pastor is, "Boy, that was deep," because what that typically means is I had no idea what you were saying, <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> right? And I think one of the challenges in communicating is that we don't talk down to people, even though that we know right. that there are people there on that level. Um, I always try and make sure that I'm not, I'm not making those people feel like I think that they're stupid or that I'm up here and I'm trying to, I'm trying to dumb it down. So you po dunk morons off the street can understand this, or you simple Christians who've never heard anything profound can understand this. I, you don't want to talk down to people. You want to recognize, you want to put things in simple terms, but without making them feel like you're, you're stepping down out of your ivory tower to communicate with the hoi polloi down in the Valley. Um, And that's a that's a challenging thing to do. And sometimes you hear um, seeker sensitive pastors do this all the time where they will try and you know, they're aware that they're appealing to the goats. They're aware that they're appealing to unbelievers. So they bring these people in. And then rather than taking complex theological issues and trying to make them understandable, what they do is they just kind of gloss over the complex issues as if those aren't important. And we're just going to really keep it simple for you, simple people. And that's how it comes across. And, yeah. and if, if we have a simple person in our congregation, I want that person to walk away thinking, okay, he, he, he knows that I'm here. I don't understand what he's saying, but he asked me to reach up rather than, rather than putting on a level where I had to look down at what he was saying. He was asking me to look up because this guy who's speaking from the pulpit actually thinks that I'm intellectually capable of understanding these things. And, uh, and I want people to feel like they're always asked to look up and to aspire to something rather than putting it down so low that everybody feels like you're just talking down to even the kindergartner in the class.
0: Yeah. And that's a good point. Uh, You know, you know, one of the things that I always struggle with when I'm out there chatting with people, you know, I, I I don't know who's going to walk up to me or when I'm chatting with someone, are they at this level? Are they at this level? Where do I start? Where do I begin? And so the key is trying to understand where that balance is just within the first, you know, two minutes of chatting with someone uh, to find out where they're at, uh, to be able to kind of take, take them to the next level. Or
2: or not take for granted. And this is, you know, what I do is I don't, I, whenever I'm speaking to someone, I've just built in the habit of using the terminology, but then defining the terminology. And guess what? Mm -hmm. If someone knows the terminology, they're not offended when you define it. And so you use it. They know what it means. Jim used, you know, Mm -hmm. the word it's okay. So you use this word. Do you have to say, okay, that is the history of, of the way a word has meaning. Mm-hmm. right do we got to define etymology okay well you know if they if they know the word great we use presuppositional apologetics do did we define it yes right it's it's so you know you could throw the word out and someone that knows what that word means goes okay got you right with you and if you define it they don't look bad at that mm-hmm. in fact they just you know typically what most people do that understand the term when you define it they're looking to see if they have the same definition as you which is actually another benefit because if they have a different definition, then it gets correct. I mean, there's so many terms that we have within Christianity that people have different meanings. I mean, the, the one that I think right. is the biggest term that has more meanings than people is probably the word Calvinist. I think everybody has their own yeah. definition of a Calvinist. Some people have two or three,
0: right? And, I'm using definition 37. Yeah, and so <laughs> yeah. By, by
2: doing that, if you're going to use a term and then you define what you mean by that, if someone has a different meaning, they correct it, and now you know where they're at, and, and that helps you sink. Because it, you've dealt, Bodhi, with, with different religions. You deal with Mormonism. They're going to say a lot of language that we would agree with. Mm-hmm. They believe in a trinity, but it's a very different trinity than us. We've talked right. the same with... It's the with, definitions with, behind it, yeah. Correct. And, and so by doing that, you know, even a, a term that we could take for granted like trinity... If I'm speaking to someone who I don't know if it, they're a believer or not, they're I'm out on the street witnessing. I will define it that that you know well Trinity. That's that there's three separate, distinct persons in one being as as a Godhead. So that each of them are mm-hmm. separate and distinct, but each but they're each God, right? Now that's going to help because if I get some person that says, "Well, Jesus isn't God," right, it causes a stumbling block, even though they may say they believe in a Trinity, right, and so it's helpful to to do that and then you can gauge they they help you gauge where they're at by, by right. disagreeing with you
0: yeah 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 it makes a lot of sense hey thanks guys
2: yeah well we Bodie we we appreciate you coming on we appreciate all the work that you're you're doing there at Anson Genesis and uh, you're you really don't do a lot of writing we understand you just sit around all day
0: <laughs> Yeah, I need, I need to get some slippers on my pillow in here in my office and <laughs> There you go, there you right. go. You should. The only reason I'm co-hosting for Andrew
1: right now is I was promised a pair of my slippers. We'll see. Oh, oh really? I,
2: I think you got on My pillow, didn't you? Once. <laughs> I
0: did, yes. So for the slippers, are, are they are they the correct size? You know, or do they run a little big? They, a little the, yeah, they
2: do run different. Um, and they they end up they say on there that they run smaller. So if you do okay. get those, you want to get them. Uh, so we I had tried to get them some time ago and realized these aren't going to fit me and so I gave I gave those away and then bought a new pair <laughs> <laughs> <I> so <gotcha. laughs> yeah they do they do run I, I I think mine were about I'd have to check the the order I think mine were like a size or two uh off so okay yeah you definitely want to get a little bit larger and they, they say that on there okay so
0: that's good to know when you go to order so. yeah
2: yeah my, my so far my favorite thing uh is the mattress topper I love their mattress. I have the three inch mattress topper. Love it. It it helped me sleep and I don't like to sleep much. So, (laughs) (laughs) Um. so so, Bodie, thanks for coming on. I I look forward to seeing, I'll be back out your way in May for the truth matters conference. So I look forward to to getting together with you then. And uh, maybe we can grab lunch and talk
0: more. Yeah. Hey, guys, appreciate it. Uh, It's been great being on. And if I can ask you, be praying for uh, the Ministry of Answers in Genesis and uh, our various outreaches. So,
2: folks, be praying for Answers in Genesis. Be praying for Bodie with all the work that he does there and all the writing he's doing. Um, The reality is, folks, we need people like this to be able to get the truths of God's Word into our hands and so he's someone who you may not know you. Maybe you didn't see his name. You usually see his name next to Ken Ham's and you see Ken Ham and forget about his name. But the reality is this is the these are the people behind the scenes that we need to be praying for. There's a lot of people in fact at Answers and Genesis that are behind the scenes. Most of them are behind the scenes, probably ninety-nine percent of them are behind the scenes. And be praying for them, pray for the ministry. If uh, if you have a church that is not familiar with Anson Genesis, maybe you can have one of their speakers come out, have one of their their, uh, workshops at your church. They do that as well, but their website is full of resources. So we thank Bodie for coming on, and we look forward to talking to you next week.
1: This podcast is part of the Striving for Eternity ministry. For more content or to request a speaker or seminar to your church, go to strivingforeternity.org.